Welcome to the Governance Podcast from the Centre for the Study of Governance and Society. My name is Mark Pennington and I'm the Director of the Centre here at King's College, University of London. Over the last two and a half years, we've been working on a project entitled The Political Economy of Knowledge and Ignorance. That project explores key questions in epistemology, dealing with the nature of knowledge, different types of knowledge, problems of uncertainty, and the institutions that facilitate social learning and that those that may suppress social learning. One of the thinkers we've been engaging with during that period is F.A. Hayek, much of whose work in economic and social theory and in political philosophy addresses these questions. Hayek is probably one of the most influential and also perhaps one of the most vilified social theorists of the last century. To discuss Hayek's life and work and some of the reasons for that influence and also vilification, I'm very pleased to have with me today Professor Bruce Caldwell, who's Research Professor in Economics at Duke University, where he directs the Centre for the History of Political Economy. Bruce is the world's leading expert on Hayek's life and career. He's the author of numerous papers addressing Hayek's work and the author of two important books, Hayek's Challenge, an Intellectual Biography with Chicago University Press, and most recently, the first volume of Hayek, A Life, 1899-1950, co-authored with Hansjörg Klausinger, also with Chicago University Press. Bruce is also the editor of Hayek's Collective Works. Bruce, welcome to the Governance Podcast. I'm delighted to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Okay, so, um, well, I hope you've been pleased with the the, um, the reception that the Hayek's life has received. I've read quite a lot of re- reviews of the, the book, um, even in places like the um, London Review of Books, the, the, the response seems to have been very positive to the contribution that you've made. I wonder if we could start the discussion just by asking you, what was the motivation behind the, the production of this biography, which has often obviously taken a huge amount of, uh, of work? I asked that given that you previously written the Hayek's Challenge book, which I think was 2004, um, which was an intellectual biography. So what was the specific motivation for for producing this specifically biographical volume? Yeah, sure. So um, if we go back to the early 2000s, in addition to publishing Hayek's Challenge, um, I was invited to become the general editor of the Collected Works. And this involved a meeting with the Hayek family. They needed to make sure that they wanted me as general editor. I wanted to make sure that I I wanted to be in that position. And it involved a trip down to Devon um, to meet with Larry Hayek and Christine Hayek, his two children. And I was was just blown away (laughs) by the visit down there. I liked both Larry and Christine immensely. They're very, uh, very easy to talk to people, very straightforward, honest, um, just delightful, really. And the house, this was Larry Hayek's house. Uh, I, I had conversations with both Christine and Larry, and then I spent the night at the house. So I had dinner with, with Larry. And the next morning, he took me up to his study, which was just filled with Hayekian memorabilia. Uh, There were maps that I thought were maps that he used for um, for skiing uh, adventures. Uh, He was a great skier and also an alpinist. uh, And uh, no, in fact, those were the maps that he used during World War One at the Italian front. uh, I came to find out Uh, his skis were up there. There was there was collections of 
pictures of orchids that he had taken at age 15 and 16 when he accompanied his father on on uh, on these various trips out into the into the countryside trying to identify new species. So there there were, of course, lots of uh, documents relating to his intellectual contributions. There were playbills dating back to when he was 11 years old. He, he kept meticulous records of all the plays that he went to. So there was just a lot of stuff there. And as I got to know the family, um, one of the one of the uh, original goals of of doing the collected works uh, that Bill Bartley uh, started. Bill Bartley uh, had planned on becoming Hayek's biographer, and the and the general idea was someone who who edits the entire collected works, uh, the general editor would be in a perfect position to then take the next step and also uh, make a contribution in terms of explaining uh, Hayek the person and and his life, and. The 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 constraint that was that Hayek always uh, put on anyone who would be his biographer would be that they understand German, and I studied of course French uh, uh, in high school, so so I that wasn't me. But uh, in the course of doing the collected works, um, uh, I two of the volumes were done by Hans Jörg Klausinger, my my co-author. He did a, a wonderful job. He was very we worked together very well. So I invited him about a decade uh, before the publication of the book to see if he was interested uh, in doing it. He said yes. And uh, really, I think what distinguishes the book from other contributions, because really there's lots and lots of stuff on Hayek out there, is that we got to know the family well. We did a number of interviews. Uh, the family shared as uh, correspondence of various sorts that that we found uh, to be fascinating. And, uh, uh, you know, basically we got to know a lot more that I realized when I was in in the in the in Larry Hayek's study. Yeah, I had worked on Hayek for probably two decades at that point and realized I knew nothing about the person. And I thought this. Yeah, I'd, I'd love to be the be the person to to, uh, you know, to participate in a project that would that would uh, try to uh, bring Hayek the person alive uh, to to a, a reading audience. Well, I think uh, the book definitely succeeds in that regard. I mean, uh, certainly compared to all the other books I've read on Hayek, even the ones that are somewhat more biographical, this is one where you really sort of are transported into the world um, that he occupied from childhood through um, the period of the First World War, the interwar period, the war itself. And of course, this particular volume finishes at 1950. Um, and you've got another one that's that's due to come. What's the timeline going to be for the for the second volume, for the sort of second part of his life from 1950 onwards? Yeah. So, um, well, it'll be 1950 to 1992 when he when he died. And if you're asking on timeline as when it's going to be done, we yeah. we don't know. <laughs> we're 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 working on it currently, and it's a it's a big project because I, I, I although it must be said a lot of the we spent five years, I would say, seeing what we had. In other words, going through the archival material, going through, you know, doing the various interviews that we were able to do, um, looking at the family correspondence. So just trying to to figure out uh, what materials we had uh, that would, you know, play a role in, in our telling the story. And so that that work has been done. But it really, you know, if you are trying to our our goal was to try to see the world, describe the world that Hayek was living in and try to see it through his eyes. And, you know, we don't deal 
with the critical literature we we yeah it's it's a big book but we, if we had if we had done all of those other things uh, that that are often uh, are parts of, of of books on a on a noted figure uh, it would have been a really large uh, uh much larger book and and this one already is quite large as you know so so we wanted to see the world through Hayek's eyes that meant describing the the context in which he was writing trying to figure out the various moves that he made both in his personal life and, and intellectually. And, uh, and I think probably within five years, we'll be able to do the, we have the second volume out, but, uh, but who knows, it really depends on, on, you know, the writing process. And when you're, uh, when you have co-authors, it, it is, it does become a, uh, a, a, another set of, of, uh, enjoyable challenges, but challenges because you have to kind of meld writing styles to try to make it a coherent whole. Yeah. So I wonder if we could go back just a little bit to um, actually thinking about the sort of looking through high X eyes. Yeah. One of the things I was really interested in in your discussions of his his early life um, was that. I mean, he was clearly from a very early age kind of involved in intellectual pursuits um, and was from a kind of background that was very much conducive to that, a kind of, um, I guess, upper middle class type background that sort of facilitated that in many ways. But you also mentioned just in your, your opening remarks there about how he had uh, recordings of things like orchids or various plant life. And one thing that I noticed is that um, in those early years, there was already an interest in botany, biology. And I think that's quite significant because in many of his later uh, writings, kind of evolutionary themes or themes to do with the importance of unplanned order uh, play such a prominent role. Um, and I was wondering whether you could maybe reflect on on that. So t is, is it the case that this early sort of interest in uh, botany or biological phenomena was something that he carried through his life and that sort of played a part in informing some of the discussions. Uh, I mean, it's very interesting. I, I think in some of his um, writings that I recall, he makes the point that ideas um, to do with um, Darwinian kind of evolutionary theory actually had their original origins more in social theory that theories of spontaneous order sort of predated um, Darwinian biology. So there's this interesting kind of interaction between biological explanations um, or natural world explanations of the natural world and social theory, the sort of relation between them. I wonder whether you might say a little bit about about that in, in his work. Sure. So, I mean, uh, just as a starting point, he he definitely came from a family of scientists. Uh, people who were engaged with the academic world in various ways. His father was a medical doctor, but he, that's how he earned his money. His true passion was what Hayek later described as plant geography. So trying to identify what, which specific species might uh, exist in various places. And um, yeah, the, all of the other members of his family, both of his brothers, one was a chemist, uh, the other was an anatomist. Uh, both of his children, uh, Larry was a medical doctor. Um, uh, uh, Christine studied beetles <laughs> and worked at the at the British uh, British uh, National History Museum. So it was it was a a family uh, that took 
that just naturally uh, engaged in scientific endeavors. The the school system at the time was was fairly strict, and I, it, I we we actually think that Hayek's real education uh, took place on family outings, uh, whenever they would be uh, you know, have a, have a vacation either in the summertime or even on the weekends. They would go outside and explore, collect things, not just plants, but, uh, you know, stones, uh, <laughs> various types of, of animals, animal life, uh, you know, from insects to, to others. He had collect varieties of collections. Let's just put it that way. So this was something that was was of interest to him. <clears throat> and he um, he also was participating in his father's uh, various um zoological uh seminars that he would host at his own house uh, uh, so it it was it was a it was definitely an academic uh emphasis in in the household and one that stressed uh science now specifically on on terms like evolutionary theory and biology he certainly was introduced to that early on um i he mentioned at one point that his father had given him some books that had to do with with that kind of science and he he probably was introduced to it a little bit too early because it was it was over his head so he didn't it didn't take to it but i have to say i i think that hayek always had a vision of himself as a scientist that he was approaching social science topics uh in a scientific manner this is going to come out uh, particularly when we take a look at his experience at chicago in the 1950s um, where he starts to develop some of the ideas that that you mention uh, in terms of of seeing uh, social phenomena as uh, examples of of complex adaptive orders, uh, uh, it, it as soon as he came to uh, recognize that some people were writing uh, about complex orders, he immediately started to apply this to the to the areas that he was that he was studying as a social scientist. So even though within economics science particularly since the 1950s has been identified with using mathematical models his approach in many ways he felt i think was more scientific he is someone who coined the word scientism uh, to refer to things that look like they have the trappings of science but but in fact are not really getting at the phenomena under question so um uh, to i i think uh, certainly he was a receptive uh, uh, vessel <laughs> for these ideas later on because of his earlier history. So I think you're exactly right on on that part. Okay, uh, I think an, another theme that I wasn't uh, familiar with that I I learned about from reading the book was about the the tensions within Hayek's family, um, especially in the interwar period, really around the issue of sort of um, anti-Semitism. Um, yeah. where you had one part of the family that um, seemed to be, if not not sympathetic to the to the Nazis, but certainly was quite anti-Semitic in, in orientation. Mm-hmm. Um, but then the other part of the family that that sort of, I guess, Hayek himself identified with was much more liberal and critical of that view. And there seemed to be sort of pronounced tensions there. So could you maybe expand a little bit on on sort of you know, you're learning about that particular aspect of his family life and the tensions. Yeah, this is all new to me, too. Um, so the, the the first place to start, I think, is to is to note 
just the varieties of anti-Semitism that existed in Fantasia Vienna. Um, there was there was a kind of scientific uh, type that had started in the 1870s and 1880s, where people were saying this is a a different race, and and uh, a lot of that soon fell by the wayside. But but uh, that was some there there were some elements of that in Vienna at the time. There's kind of a vulgar um, uh, anti-Semitism that would associate with peasants who were uh, very influenced by the Catholic Church. So these are the people that killed Christ. Uh, there was economic anti-Semitism. You have uh, a competition from from uh, peddlers. So if you're if you're a small business owner and you have suddenly an inflow of, of peddlers uh, coming from the east, uh, that was uh, that was competition for you. You had cultural anti-Semitism because a lot of the Ost-Juden, uh, the people who were coming from, from Russia and escaping pogroms, they were Orthodox uh, Jews. They looked different. They didn't want to assimilate. They weren't like the uh, uh, acculturated and cultural, culturally uh, very sophisticated uh, Jewish population that was already existing there. So there was a, a, a wide variety of this uh, uh, present in Vienna, and it only intensified after World War One. So it was at... Uh, uh, his own birth family, um, Hayek described as, as uh, you know, in, in living in that environment, that there was a kind of a tacit anti-Semitism. It wasn't talked about that much because they did have some uh, relations, uh, married into relations that that were Jewish. But uh, but, it, you know, he, he said it was it was definitely there um, in the 20s uh, after uh, uh, the war was over. Uh, things were really rough in Austria, hard to find a job. I mean, Hayek was quite happy to go to the London School of Economics. In fact, he was, he was delighted uh, to get uh, the offer to come to the London School of Economics. But both of his brothers were having a very hard time finding uh, work in Austria. So both of them ended up working in Germany in the 1930s. And one of them we don't know too too much about. He didn't seem to be political at all, Eric, his uh, one, of, one of his brothers. But the other brother... Heinz was uh, working as an anatomist in in Hitler's Germany, and uh, yeah, coming from uh, Austria, <laughs> he wanted to keep his job. We kind of describe him as as kind of a a, a pragmatic uh, uh, supporter of, of of Hitler's regime because he it it, it w he was basically a state employee, so he he needed to to uh, toe the line. So he was someone who became a brown uh, you know, a brown shirt, joined the SA. In uh, in 1933, that, by the way, was a, a point in time when virtually all of Germany was very, very supportive of, of Hitler. Um, uh, it was before some of the uh, atrocities that started to pile up uh, uh, were occurring. So November of that year, the you know, German enthusiasm for Hitler was at, was uh, uh, definitely at its peak. Um, and uh, Hayek at this time was a liberal. Uh, he had, uh, during university days, uh, encountered a number of Jewish students. He's, one of his best friends was Herbert Firth. So he had already started breaking with his family's attitudes uh, as a university student uh, in 1919, 18, 19, 20. Uh, so by the 30s, you know, he was a well-established liberal, and he would be disagreeing in his correspondence with his family members who were who were back in uh, in in uh, either Vienna or in uh, two different cities in Germany, and that that uh, was was quite a, um, a as you point out that very tense uh, relationship. Um, only uh, uh, he 
Hayek actually came through in in my view, and this was something that was interesting to me as as a real hero in this in this uh, in this period, when the Anschluss took place in 1938, when when uh, Germany marched into uh, Austria, Hayek at, at great personal risk, uh, uh, you know, soon thereafter took a trip to Austria to try to uh, see what happened to any of his friends that he that that were that he had known through the Geist crisis as student groups and and uh, various places that he worked trying to help people get out he he was not alone uh, Mises uh, Beveridge uh, Mocklip uh, a number of uh, Lionel Robbins they were all trying to help uh, people uh, who they knew to 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 escape uh, and these these would be not just Jewish scholars but uh, uh, liberals and socialists uh, all of them. Uh, they, they were all uh, persona non grata uh, under under that regime. So uh, anything that they could do to to help, they they did. But it was at personal risk. I mean, he, his his name was identified by the Gestapo uh, that you know if he shows up again in Vienna, we we want to nab him. So um, he was he was somebody who was uh, who was you know a, a strong liberal, and you know obviously he. he he became a British uh, citizen in 1938 again, just a, uh, shortly after after the Anschluss took place. So he wanted to establish very clearly where his uh, where his beliefs and sympathies lied. So it was a it was a very, very interesting episode, in, in, and it it makes some of the things that he said in the road to serfdom hmm. when he when he talks about you know how how the how the worst get on top and. Hmm. Uh, uh, the end of truth and all that sort of thing, uh, it, all that much more uh, poignant uh, when you recognize his own personal situation in terms of his family. Well, I was I was actually going to say before you mentioned that just now that um, to what extent did that, that experience actually influence um, the Road to Serfdom book? Because, I mean, many people obviously associate that book with being a, a critique of socialism. And yes. we can talk about that perhaps in, in a few minutes. But of course, it is also a critique of, of Nazism. Yes. It's it, it's a critique of all sort of totalitarian forms and the fact that they often get wrapped up with um sort of um well racist kind of arguments actually in, in yep. some in some settings. Yep. I mean the 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 road to serfdoms the some of the ideas in it first came to surface in a memo that Hayek wrote in the spring of 1933. So this would have been after Hitler's enabling act and and basically when he really started to consolidate control and and uh and repress the various groups uh labor unions uh, uh you know socialists etc uh it was called yeah nazi socialism okay and it was trying to emphasize that nazism is a variant of socialism and that it and that both of them um uh, are totalitarian systems that will lead to bad things. Now, this outraged, of course, uh, this kind of view would have outraged uh, British intelligentsia in the interwar period because they viewed uh, Nazism as a as the last dying gasp of capitalism, an attempt to to keep socialism. It was a Great Depression. Marx had predicted that uh, during one of these great downturns, uh, socialism would arise. So this was uh, the general view was uh, was that uh, Nazism was it was an attempt to keep uh, socialism from from uh, taking the next step. And but Hayek was pointing out, look, this is an authoritarian system. <laughs> so it did indeed start with his response to Nazism. And by the time he's writing The Road to Serfdom uh, during World War II, he couldn't 
make references to the Soviet Union because they were an ally. So he had to uh, kind of uh, make m draw most of his examples from uh, from the situation in in uh, in yeah. Germany. Uh, so those later chapters about uh, you know the socialist uh, roots of of, of Nazism uh, all all are kind of aimed in that direction. But certainly he he recognized that the Soviet Union would have been a very good a uh, good example for the to be used to, had they not been our allies at the time. Just just to go back a little bit to the early 1930s, I mean, you mentioned how he was how he was really thrilled to get the job at the London School of Economics. Um, you get the sense from from that period that he was sort of catapulted almost into from relative obscurity, I guess, almost sure. to being at the very centre of key debates in economics, sort of almost from nowhere, he's catapulted into the centre of these things in the early 1930s. I wonder, could you say a little bit more about that? How how did he sort of, do you, do you have any sense of how he felt about 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 that? Or, or did he realise what was sort of going on at that point in time? Well, he was certainly over the moon to get a job uh, at the London School of Economics. Um, yeah, he, he came first as a as a a visiting a professor for a year, yeah. and then they extended him a a job offer. So, uh, and it was on the basis of him having uh, given four uh, lectures that became Prices in Production. And if you think about what that book was, it was a book that uh, that revealed both his understanding of monetary history, the history of monetary economics, mm -hmm. in the first uh, of the lectures. Uh, a theoretical apparatus that was new to people in England, uh, trying to describe what the origins of the of kind of the downturns were, and then some, uh, some comments on on policy in the fourth lecture. So this was this yeah he was viewed as somebody who was coming from the continent, um, uh, providing uh, a timely, uh, important theoretical and potentially uh, you know certainly historical and policy oriented uh, uh, work, and. Robbins was trying to build up the LSE as a as a place that would challenge the dominance of Oxford and Cambridge, and it, it his approach was to try to bring in scholars from the continent uh, who would be uh, who would be notable um, uh, additions, and it's not all just in Marshall. Um, <laughs> so, yeah. uh, I Hayek was was you know really happy to be there as soon as he arrives though he does in in fact get involved in a in a dispute um in the two different theoretical approaches both of them deriving theoretically uh, by borrowing from Nutvik Sell but in very different ways that he and 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 Keynes uh, who, who had just published a, a treatise on money in 1930 and high prices and production comes out you know a couple of years later uh, these are two very different visions of how a monetary uh, uh, economy works and, and and the kind of troubles it can get into. So that was the initial dispute. Soon thereafter, he engages in a number of uh, arguments with socialists, kind of socialist calculation debate in the 1930s, mid-1930s. Uh, and a really important part of, of of what we we talk about in the book is the is the Robbins uh, Grand Seminar. So. It, it, it's associated with Lionel Robbins because he started it. Uh, Arnold Plant and Hayek uh, were also convening, helping to convene it. And it was in this seminar that a lot of the uh, uh, the formalisms uh, that we now might associate with 
an intermediate price theory or uh, macro textbook were being developed, uh, you know, the the assortment of people who came through that seminar is just a you know who's who of of modern economics, and all of that was being developed, and Hayek was was a witness to it, <laughs> as it were, uh, and it was it was a, a form of economics. That, you know, we think about his his idea of the economy as being a, a complex adaptive order. Uh, that's something that that comes later, but surely he's 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 looking at this formalism and he's saying it's not really capturing all of the things that we might want to capture. <laughs> and this was how he uh, basically, particularly uh, in economics and knowledge, of a paper that he that he wrote in the in the mid 30s, ultimately came to talking about the knowledge problem that the formalisms that you know static equilibrium theory doesn't doesn't really capture uh the the way that a market system a well-functioning market system will coordinate uh human action in a world of dispersed uh knowledge uh where knowledge is localized and some people have wrong ideas about the about the world and, and the future and yet we we see it, an amazing amount of coordination and an equilibrium theory a theory based on equilibrium kind of says yeah it's looking at the end point uh and and doesn't really it's making assumptions about everyone has perfect knowledge every you know things all adjust uh, in a timeless way that this isn't very helpful in understanding how a market system uh, works so um it was during that day it was a very very fertile time intellectually for the discipline but also for hayek's own development i mean what the impression i get reading about that period is that when hayek was participating in these debates to some extent, the debate with Keynes, but also the the socialist calculation debate as well, that many of the confusions that surround those debates, the fact that different participants are kind of talking past each other, it really reflects the shift in the nature of economics that you have um, Hayek using a set of ideas or concepts that aren't really suited to the kind of formalistic method, but it's that sort of formalistic language that many of his kind of interlocutors were actually sort of engaged in or thinking through. And that was one of the reasons that many of those debates weren't, weren't properly engaged in some ways. Um, but it also is the reason why Hayek having been sort of catapulted into the LSE at the center of things also finds himself, you know, within 10, 15 years sort of marginalized within the economics profession precisely because the kind of arguments he was using didn't fit into the new mode of exposition that you say was actually developing in a sense almost around him at, at, at that seminar. Yeah, it's 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 a fascinating uh, topic in, in kind of the methodological changes that were taking place within economics from the interwar period through the post-war period when when the formalism kind of stabilized as a as a means of expressing our you know our knowledge of, of how the economy works but it, he he always was a theorist um and so he was a verbal theorist and he was getting at things that ended up being extremely important so one of the most cited papers in economics is his 1945 the use of knowledge in society it was it was picked up on by people who do the economics of information the Coles Commission people at the University of Chicago when he went there in the 1950s, Koopmans and 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 others were all referencing that paper, seeing it yeah. as something that was a real challenge 
uh, to the ideas that they were developing and trying to integrate it into what they were doing. So even though he was not um, he was not able to keep up mathematically in terms of his he, he didn't have mathematics training. He, he trained as a lawyer uh, in, in in Vienna in at university, and uh, there was very little mathematics in the curriculum uh in in the secondary school and in primary school so uh outside of basic stuff so so he was not somebody who was comfortable with that but he 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 had the mind of a theorist so it is it is it's a it's fascinating to see him struggle to try to get his ideas across when he in a sense didn't have the language for it that was being then uh, uh so so rapidly developing yeah what what strikes me about this as well is that um, it's obviously a different time, but this kind of schism between Hayek's understanding of of knowledge and of how of the role of markets in coordinating knowledge, how that differs from the more sort of mechanical uh, neoclassical mm. equilibrium models, that sort of mismatch is still reflected in sort of contemporary commentaries on the nature of the economics discipline, where so often you get people who are critics of what they describe as neoliberal or market-oriented policies, right. who claim that they are based on this totally unrealistic model of omniscient agents who react yep. instantaneously to uh, prices. Um, and it's that very model that Hayek was rejecting. Exactly right. Um, exactly and yet right. Hayek gets lumped in with a whole load of ideas um, that he actually rejected. And, and one of the reasons that um, the way he re rejected them was one of the reasons he became marginalized within the profession. So right. it's almost as though he loses both ways. There we go. Well, you know, my my first book that you were kind enough to mention, Hayek's Challenge, my, my initial interest in Hayek was in his methodological ideas because I thought yeah. they were very profound. But you're exactly right. I mean, these are ideas that are, you know, he, he's identified politically as somebody who's a liberal. So, of course, uh, people who are uh, you know, progressives and, and socialists are going to uh, view him as, as the enemy. But his, his ideas were directly challenging uh, the development of economics uh, through the rest of the 20th century, both the, the formalist revolution as well as the econometric uh, revolution, you know, kind of the empirical turn that we see uh, uh, also all dominant uh, in the past 20, 25 years. Uh, yeah, he, he was he was taking a, a, a third way, <laughs> a very different third way. Yeah. And it, it, you're exactly right, though. So many of the of the criticisms that are that are raised about economics. I mean, Hayek viewed himself as an economist. Yeah. Uh, and he thought economics is very important for the understanding of the world. It's just that these these models are not necessarily going to enable you to get that kind of understanding. Uh, uh, Pete Betke at George Mason University uh, distinguishes between mainline economics and mainstream economics. So mainstream is whatever the flavor of the day is. And it changes. You know, it, it, I've, I've seen three or four different changes in the course of my career, uh, observing as an historian the, the, the development of economics. Um, but main line would be you, know, you could draw a line from Adam Smith and Hume uh, through through uh, various writers to to people like Hayek, uh, Douglas North, uh, Vernon Smith today. Um, and I think that's a that's a very uh, it's a very rich, rich metaphor, I think, to for, for trying to get a grasp at, at the various ways that economics uh, has developed uh, uh, through time. Well, I think this is also 
fascinating in terms of his relationship with, um, if you like, the left in politics. So if you think that, um, I'd say there are broadly two kinds of um, sort of left-wing theorization in social theory. You have got some people who I think now very much in the minority, but perhaps not, this was probably not the case in the 1930s and 40s. You have a minority who do subscribe to a kind of scientific view, which is a kind of predict control model, uh, which leads them to support some kind of rationalistic planning, if you like. But you also have, and I think today, this is a kind of majority perspective, but it really grew out of the new left in the 1960s, which is a form of left wing social theory, which is deeply critical of positivism yeah. and some kind of notion of scientific or rationalistic control. And in that sense, there's great parallels with Hayek's ideas that um, Hayek is an anti-positivist theorist. He's, he's someone who's critical of a kind of predictive control model of society. So you would think there should be grounds for a kind of conversation, a productive conversation between sort of left wing critics of positivism and Hayekians. And yet it seems to me that it's, it's really quite rare for those conversations to take place. And they really should take place because it's a really interesting space. Yeah. Things are, are a bit fraught these days in terms of crossing uh, crossing the, <laughs> the yeah. lines for discussion. But um, I, I'll tell you, when I was first uh, coming up uh, in the uh, late 70s through the 80s, uh, those discussions were taking place. I attended conferences that were identified as post-Keynesian conferences. Uh, there was yeah. real interest in various heterodox, what would be defined as heterodox groups, in the thought of uh, of the others, because there were often methodological similarities, uh, similar yeah. complaints about uh, what the mainstream understanding of economic phenomena were. Certainly, very different um, uh, solutions politically in terms of policy, but uh, many of, as I said, and as you said, similar complaints. So, yeah, uh, exactly right. And and yes, Hayek was. Yeah, scientism in the study of society is a is a complete rejection of positivist approaches. But this dates back to the 1920s in the in the Mises seminar that he attended uh, in the 20s. Yeah, the Vienna Circle was was active and 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 going, and they had somebody at the Mises seminar who was attending the Vienna Circle meetings and then coming back and and saying here's here's the kind of conversations that are taking place there, and they were very much. Uh, Mises and Mises certainly, but Hayek as well, and and the other Austrians were were anti-positivists, just as you say. And I think these arguments as well, they do have. There is, I think, there are examples. Although you say quite rightly that you know maybe people nowadays just don't seem to be um, talking to each other enough across various political or ideological divides. But there are some very interesting examples of people. I think really do interesting work that tries to cross those bridges. I mean, one person I'm thinking of that um, I did a podcast with would be probably about three years ago now is Jeffrey Hodgson, oh, yeah, who sure. is someone who has very much taken on um, the sort of critiques of scientism that Hayek made to move towards a kind of social democracy that does allow a significant role for markets on Hayekian lines but tries to combine them with the sorts of social protections or whatever that um, many social democrats are committed to. And that's, 
he's an interesting example of someone who genuinely has tried to piece together those different elements. Now, obviously, people could do that in different ways, but it, it seems to me a great tragedy that there isn't more of that sort of work going on on either side of that divide, if you like. Yeah, Jeff was somebody who I met in the uh, early 80s at one of those meetings, and we've, yeah. we've known each other ever since. And you're exactly right. He's a very good example of someone who does uh, does uh, uh, one of the bridge people. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Mm-hmm. I think we need more of them. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And he's a fine fellow as well. So we need more of that as well. <laughs> so I wonder if you could say a little bit now, maybe following on from that, about where do you see the sort of uh, the future of, of Hayek scholarship, if you like, work in this sort of area? So obviously you've been working in this space for a long time, not only in terms of doing the, the biographical work, but also actually taking this tradition of ideas forward. Where do you see that going in the future, sort of as we, you know, engage with all the challenges that there are in the the contemporary world. Sure. So I think um, Hayek has made a, a, a number of uh, important contributions. Certainly, uh, it is very hard to be uh, a certain type of socialist these days. You, you, there are social democrats, and, but mm-hmm. you don't see central planning as something that people who, who have studied this literature uh, embracing. Uh, so his critique of of a certain type of socialism, I think, is stands the test of time. And one of the things, though, that you see as an historian is you see the same ideas being recycled every twenty or thirty years. So it's important to to keep that that knowledge yeah. in place because it's it is very easy to forget generations forget what what took place beforehand. Um, his his uh, insights into what a well-functioning market system is able to do in terms of uh, producing lots of stuff and doing it in a way that allows people the maximum amount of liberty to 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 self-determine uh yeah that's that's a a marvelous insight he used the word it's a marvel when we think about what the what a market system is able to do when it's when it's functioning correctly one of the ways that he sees it not functioning correctly is if you have monetary disturbances and monetary disorders. And that is, I think that's going to be an ongoing problem. And every generation has to has to kind of, I think, solve that anew because you have financial innovation constantly taking place that can cause disruptions that 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 really and and when when prices aren't aren't reflecting relative scarcities, which is what can happen during those sorts of disorders, uh, that, that can be a problem. Some of those disorders are caused by attempts to stabilize the economy. So mm. uh, there, you know, there are lessons for policymakers there too. Um, uh, both he and, and Friedman, who he disagreed with on, on, on uh, certain methodological uh, ideas, I think were at one, and so were many of the people who gathered at, at that first Mont Pelerin Society meeting uh, in 1947, as the importance of a rules-based order. That that if you if you have rules rather than discretion, uh, if you choose the right rules, that's going to that's going to give you a a more stable environment that you're able that people are able to make their own decisions and less likely to be surprised because there's been a Sudden change by the Fed or the you know, central bank uh, doing taking actions that suddenly make the future uh, quite different. So, that yeah, there's there's insights there, and of course you know with 
artificial intelligence and all of those changes that are taking place. I mean, he certainly, you know, he was he was talking about the importance of knowledge, but boy, this is things are exploding these days. So I'm sure there are insights there that I don't understand. Uh, that, but I think that that given his interests, uh, both in, in in complex adaptive orders, but also in in the role of knowledge in in society, that uh, I think there's there's stuff to be drawn on there. I might I might not know how to do it, but but uh, luckily there's going to be a lot of generations uh, after me who will who will uh, potentially be able to do so. Well, I think the um, the AI issue is is one actually it connects to the other point you made about how certain arguments you realize from looking at the history get replicated. Yep. So, you know, there were people during the um, socialist cal- calculation debate who were basically saying that the Hayek argument was one about computing power right. and that it would be possible to gather this information if only the computing power increased. Yep. And you have had some people in the recent past making these yes. arguments about uh, AI, that we now have this increased computing power. And what that misses out, at least for me, is the fact that, well, if AI becomes widely accessible, it simply makes it possible for individuals or for organizations to make more complex decisions than they would otherwise have been able to make. So at the meta level, the system becomes even more complex Mm -hmm. Uh, Mm -hmm. than would otherwise be the case. You don't sort of have one AI that can somehow uh, synoptically view the whole system, because if you've got interacting AIs, they're actually in a way almost replicating, if not on an even greater level, the complexity of the market system. Um, So you don't have any one sort of um, AI planner, if you like, that can actually supervise everything. Uh, and And that seems to be a sort of insight that you can actually find through the socialist calculation Mm -hmm. debate even way before anybody was sort of thinking about that technology. Right. It's going to be a very interesting ride, I think, uh, coming forward. But uh, yes, I I agree completely with everything that you just said. You know, the idea of uh, how a market system creates coordination when you've got millions of individual agents and you just double the number of agents by <laughs> yeah. by doubling AI agents. Uh, so yeah. exactly right. It's 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 how does that how does that coordination take place in 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 the new environment with those kind of changes? It, it's it will be it will be very interesting to see not only how it plays out in the world but also how people theorize about it. And I think that's going to be uh, that'll be interesting if if AI doesn't just wipe us all out, <laughs> which is the other. The other yeah. fear that some I mean, one of, one of the things that I'm intrigued about that is the, the fact that within um, there are some people within the um, the socialist tradition who obviously look for is are there mechanisms that can can mm-hmm. replace the market in a sense. Right. And so right. there's always a the search for these technologies. But I, I've always found it intriguing how. If you think of Marx's criticisms of of capitalism, one of the fundamental criticisms Marx made was the idea that it's alienating, uh, that right. people are in this sea of prices. It's not deliberate coordination, that you have to be pushed and pulled around by these yeah. impersonal market forces. So one of the reasons socialists in that tradition want socialism is they believe that it generates this kind of conscious social control of the society, that people are can sort of collectively plan their future. Now, Hayek's argument sort of illustrates significant problems with that. 
But what it amazes me about, um, if you like, those socialists who are looking to AI is that why on earth would one think that AI, AI is not alienating the people? You know, if you're pushed and pulled around by market forces, the idea that having machines do it for you would be any better is a, is a really quite a strange idea. Right, right. I mean, anyone who, who doesn't like um, Alexa in their <laughs> in their yeah in their home, uh, listening to them and suddenly uh, whatever they've said is shows up in their, in their feed on, on Facebook or wherever, I mean, yeah, the advertisements that they'll be getting. So, I mean, yeah, I, I, I have to say uh, uh, the, the, the notion that, that, <laughs> that this is going to be a benign force is, is something that I, I think a lot of people are, are quite worried about, frankly. <clears throat> okay, Bruce, thank you very much. Um, so, well, I guess we've just got to look forward to this next volume in Hayek's life from 1950 to 1992. So it's probably going to be a few years away, but I, for one, will be very much looking forward to it. And I've uh, very much enjoyed the conversation with you today. So thank you very much, Bruce. It's been it's been lovely being on your podcast and thank you for inviting me. Uh, good to see you again. Thank you. Bye bye.